Welcome to Rare Air with Mary Fayton. Stories of humanity, health and self-mastery. It was arguably the gut that brought Dr Michael Mosley his earliest public recognition. His 1994 documentary on the work of West Australian researchers Professor Barry Marshall and Dr Robin Warren brought nominations for an Emmy, a BAFTA and also brought a lot of mail. The experience marked the realisation that Hippocrates was onto something 2,500 years ago when he said all disease begins in the gut. Dr Mosley has made countless documentaries since, often experimenting on himself. He's also authored several books, including The 5-2 Diet, The 8-Week Blood Sugar Diet and The Clever Guts Diet, which have gleaned the best advice he's gathered on how to prolong good health. Michael, it's great to be with you. Lovely to be here. Hippocrates spoke about the gut 2,500 years ago, but it's only relatively recently that an understanding of this has begun to infiltrate the mainstream, and that's had a lot to do with you. How do we lose our way? (laughs) I think the problem with the gut, and certainly the contents of the gut, is uh, they're very difficult to explore. So you've got a gut, and it's probably six to eight metres long, and most of it you couldn't reach. So it really was an undiscovered country, and almost another planet. And certainly the creature that live in the gut, the microbiome, the one to two kilos of microbes that live down there. Most of them really can't grow or live outside the gut. So it was impossible to culture them because normally you look at microbes, you get them, say, from a poo sample, and then you grow them up, and that's where you identify what's going on further up. But the reality is there are a thousand different species in there, around 100 trillion individuals, that's one followed by 14 (laughs) noughts, and most of them really couldn't grow outside the airless, dark um, confines of the gut. So it was only really when people started to develop new genetic fingerprinting techniques that we've been able to do that, and certainly to do so at a sort of cost that means that researchers can really get to grips with what is going on in the deep, dark parts of the bowel. Let's go back to the, those very mm. early realisations for you. What you said that interviewing the eventual Nobel Prize winners, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, for Horizon almost 25 years ago was a seminal moment in your pursuit of understanding the gut. Why did it affect you that way? Well, I mean, it was just a remarkable story. I mean, it was just fantastic anyway. Uh, the story of Barry um, self-experimenting was obviously very dramatic. Uh, the fact that he'd done those experiments with Robin back in uh, 1984. I make the film in 1994 and not very much has changed at that point. And uh, they were just great characters. But I think what inspired the medical community was when the ideas were finally accepted, they win the Nobel Prize for Medicine, suddenly everyone goes, wow, there is this you know, previously unknown organism, it's doing something really interesting, perhaps there are a load of other organisms down in the bowel doing equally interesting, mysterious things uh, that we know nothing about. And maybe there's more Nobel Prizes to be won there. Mm. So from the point of view of the scientific community, this was massive. From a personal point of view, um, I've always kind of been interested a bit in the bowel, uh, but it was also what happened. I decided to pitch the idea of uh, the history of medicine told through self-experimenters. I was then actually a director. I was behind the camera. And I pitched this idea for about 20 years. And eventually I got in front of somebody who said, sounds like a good idea. Who's going to actually present it? And I said, I've got no idea. And she said, why don't you do it? So that's how I became a television presenter. And in time, that led to me becoming an author. So all of it goes way back uh, to that original horizon with Barry and Robin. Mm.
as I mentioned in the introduction, mm. you were inundated with response from that doco uh, that was nominated for an Emmy and a BAFTA. As you say, kind of 10 years before that Nobel Prize appeared. What were the main perspectives in those responses? Well, I talked to an awful lot of um, gastroenterologists and other doctors uh, while making the documentary and broadly speaking, they thought, they still thought it was kind of nonsense. Uh, but there were a lot of people who responded to the documentary and they didn't want to go on taking the pills or they didn't want to have a partial gastrectomy, which was kind of the alternative being offered. You'd have part of your stomach removed, which obviously is pretty radical. And so they wanted to try something which um, promised the possibility of a cure. So, uh, yeah, we had something between five and 10,000. This was in days before emails. So it was five to 10,000 letters and things like that. We had to kind of employ somebody pretty well full-time for a while just to kind of produce a fact sheet and send it out. And, uh, yeah, it kind of went on. The documentary went on selling all over the world. So I continued to get sort of letters and emails for the next 10 years. Because normally you kind of make a documentary and it kind of goes out and that's it. And maybe you win an award, maybe you don't. Uh, but you move on to something else. But this one lingered. But your, and your enthusiasm for the topic remained? Oh, 100%. I mean, I went off and I did loads of other things. I made some dramas. I did a whole host of other things. But I kind of maintained an interest. I tried to keep in contact. Uh, with Robin and Barry, I uh, kept reading stuff about the gut and I kept on reading about new discoveries in the gut. But it was only really in the last three or four years that the subject has become unbelievably hot. And I believe that in the last two or three years, uh, the number of scientific papers on the microbiome has gone up about 2,000%. So that is partly a product, as I say, of the technology. Mm. So it was kind of like Gallo looking up at the heavens, He's got the telescope and suddenly there's a vast universe out there which no one had suspected. And the same is kind of true of the gut. We now have the tools, the means to investigate it in a way which was not previously possible. And now that scientists can do that, they've discovered all these extraordinary links between the gut and particularly the microbiome and things like mental health, the immune system, weight, um, all sorts of things that people really didn't imagine. Mm. What does it mean to you to be the, the interface between all of this really important research that's going on and delivering it to the public in a way that we can actually do something with that information? I um, Hopefully I do it in a sort of interesting, accessible way because the counter side of it is there's an awful lot of nonsense as well because when you get these sort of discoveries and lots of people jump on the bandwagon, there's lots of stuff um, sold as probiotics now um, in supermarkets and other places, most of which are completely and utterly useless. And um, equally, there's a lot of food intolerances, which is a sort of genuine phenomena, but people will go off and they'll send their hair samples off or they'll send blood samples off. And unfortunately, none of that is even remotely scientific is basically utter specious waste of time and money. So uh, that's the other side of it. I kind of try to warn people about the nonsense, but there is something genuinely exciting here. And as you say, it's great because uh, I get to talk to a lot of scientists. They respect what I have to say. They know I'm going to treat their research with respect. Mm. So uh, they, uh, yeah, they're very open about what they're up to. And in some cases, they um, also tell me about stuff which is coming up, which is also great if you're writing a book like Clever Guts, because otherwise the danger is that it's kind of out of date even before you've written it, mm. because this stuff is moving so fast. But um, the stuff in there is still 
unbelievably topical. Um, so um, that's kind of what I'm pleased about. Yeah. You talked about a lot of the pseudoscience around the testing. And I, I think that's an interesting question in that it, it raises the idea of, you know, often when people are embarking on trying to improve their health in this way, it's good to have a support person, a kind of a mentor to, to guide you through that process. But your GP isn't necessarily the right person. Unfortunately not, because, you know, um, medical training, I went through medical school, wife went through medical school, son is just qualified as a doctor, and none of us um, really learn anything about nutrition at medical school. They don't teach it in the UK, they don't teach it in Australia either. Um, so it's kind of a really important area, and yet it's almost entirely ignored, which is bizarre, I have to say. Um, and therefore, you find it struggle to keep up to date along with everything else. So yeah, I mean, I hope I'm to some extent a kind of trusted guide on this. Mm -hmm. I try to give you the good, the bad and the ugly when I write these books. And um, I also have a website, uh, cleverguts.com, where I can bring things up to date. Um, because uh, things do change. I mean, broadly speaking, the message of the book is, you know, it really is as good as we got at the moment, but I'm conscious that there are areas which will evolve. And so I kind of want to, you know, I want to interact with the audience. I want to, you know, that's the joy of, um, the joy books is that you reach a wide number of people and it can be very influential. If you can tie that in with websites, then you get the best of both worlds. Yeah. The website can also respond. People can write in, they can become part of a community. Uh, they can do all those other hugely valuable things, uh, which are utterly important for sort of, you know, uh, moving this stuff on, but also for health. Mm. From from that early inspiration about the gut, I'm really interested because you've made, I mean, you've been producing television for such a long time uh, and, and really exploring what it, the science around health in, in various different aspects. But was fasting the first thing that really got you excited as it being a new frontier in some ways? Sure, because that was actually in 2012. And the reason I got interested in it was because I had uh, just discovered that I was a type 2 diabetic, like my dad. And my dad had developed type 2 diabetes around the same age, you know, early 50s. And um, he had gone on to develop dementia. Um, he had heart failure and then he died at the age of 74. So I could see that was a kind of road that I might be traveling down. And that's what in I went off to find something I could do about it because I didn't want to start on medication because I kind of know where that journey ends. Mm. Um, so uh, I was fortunate I can bring up lots of people and that pointed me towards intermittent fasting and led to me making a documentary, Eat Fast, Live Longer, uh, which was all about intermittent fasting. And I met some really influential, important, exciting scientists who kind of really uh, inspired me because they'd kind of been working in this field for a while. And uh, it was not something I knew anything about. And I said, prior to that, I really barely had any interest in nutrition. Mm. I kind of, you know, if you'd ask me, I'd say, go on a low-fat diet, do a bit of exercise. Uh, but I really didn't know anything more than that. So this was the beginning of my education, if you like. Yeah, I just re-watched Eat Fast, Live Longer uh, over the mm. last few days. And it's a really exciting watch in a lot of ways because of the revelations that are in there. But one of the things that I noticed, and I guess there's no greater leveler um, as a practitioner than being presented as having the disease that you've, you, you know, maybe in the past have advised other people about. Um, but you were very serious and very pensive about some of the information that was being given to you at the time about what what the state of your body was and what you could do to fix it and whether you were prepared to undertake that. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. 
yeah, I remember it very clearly because, um, as I said, it was very serious. Um, but for me, it was very serious because it was the first time uh, that I had seriously questioned my uh, long-term health. Mm. And as I said, uh, back of my brain was echoing thoughts about my dad, and I didn't want to go down that road. And I have kids who are in their 20s, late teens, and I like to be around for them. Um, so for me, it was wholly serious. And I guess as a documentary, part of its power comes from that. And also from the fact that um, I had no idea how it was going to turn out. Um, so I set off with some ideas and some research and the researchers on horizon are very good and they kind of point you in directions. But to be honest, none of us had any idea where the film was going to go to and how would it would end. Mm. Um, so uh, I end up uh, effectively inventing a diet, the 5 2 diet. Uh, and I think I say at the end of it, I think this is going to be really big, but um, that could have been completely wrong. It could have, uh, you know, all crashed and burnt at that point. Mm. But instead, what it did is it led to me writing the fast diet and uh, suddenly intermittent fasting, combination of the documentary, the book, and whatever, suddenly caught people's imagination and it really took off. Um, but as I said, it also inspired me to go on looking more at kind of what was going on, what was going on inside me, what was going on inside the health service, looking at things like type 2 diabetes, what can you do about it? So, uh, yeah, it really triggered a lot of things. Mm. But it's one of those things, again, where, you know, the, the evidence had been there for a lot longer than we were prepared to uh, accept. It was, um, you talked about how in the depression, people's health had improved yeah. uh, when they were when they were on lower, with, I guess, essentially restricted calorie. Um, but I have a book at home called The Fasting Cure by a guy called Upton Sinclair, who was a journalist. And I think it's all anecdotal evidence, but that was written in 1911 yes. um, and talks about exactly the same thing, you know, how all the, the myriad, the raft of health, health benefits that can be achieved through fasting. So, um, I, I mean, the trouble is, I guess, that it's socially difficult. I think so. It's also, to be honest, um, nobody was taking it terribly seriously because um, it was difficult to measure things. Um, there weren't any clinical trials going on. We've known, you know, all the great religions have advocated fasting mm. um, and uh, mainly for, you know, spiritual reasons rather than for health reasons, although I imagine the two are sort of entwined. But this was a coming together, if you like, of religion and science. And um, there were plenty of people I came across who had been doing a lot of research, particularly in animals, because that's where a lot of the basic research starts. So, as you said, a lot of it goes back to the 1930s and um, calorie restriction, long-term calorie restriction is the only thing that has ever been shown to extend life in every species where it's been tested. Um, uh, more recently, you know, it's been in monkeys that demonstrated uh, that and, uh, you know, humans are under investigation mm. and there are come a couple of big trials, but to be honest, you know, you're going to have to wait a long time because humans live 80 years. So to actually demonstrate uh, the impact of that sort of thing. But that's kind of where I started was looking at calorie restriction, long-term calorie restriction. But I realized there was no way I was kind of going to stick to two-thirds of my normal calories for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, so that 
led me to intermittent fasting where the scientists said that actually, uh, certainly on the animal research, uh, there was good evidence that that would give you similar benefits. Mm. So it kind of went from long-term calorie restriction to intermittent fasting. Originally, it was kind of alternate day fasting, which is um, there's um, Christovarity at the University of Chicago who's been doing a lot of research on that. But um, I went to kind of 5-2, mm. and that was under the inspiration of uh, Dr. Mark Matson, who's a, um, an eminent neuroscientist. And again, it's interesting because his inspiration came from the fact that his father had died of dementia, and he, that's what he investigates. He investigates things like dementia, Parkinson's, and he has some very compelling evidence that intermittent fasting is um, protective mm. for those disorders. And Mark Matson, I think, is a classic example. It seems to me that that the, the scientists who are involved in understanding how a beneficial fasting can be either for mental or physical health really walk that talk as well. They 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 live it out yes. and because they really believe in it. Oh, absolutely. And he's pretty skinny. Yeah. Uh, he, does, <laughs> he does quite a lot of running. He tends not to eat until sort of two in the afternoon. Uh, and he's also an advocate, and several of them are, of that a different form of fasting, which you might call 16-8, where you kind of eat all your calories within an eight-hour window. And uh, he has a sort of understanding of the underlying biological mechanisms. So his preoccupation is he's a sort of a pure scientist. He's a pure neuroscientist, uh, over 700 publications, you know, massively cited. But he's really interested in the nitty-gritty. Mm. So he's done mainly animal research. Um, and I guess it's the translation into human research, uh, which is uh, ultimately the most convincing thing. Mm. And that requires quite big long-term trials. It requires quite a lot of money. So I think he was, and I'm, I know he is because I spoke to him, he was delighted that I'd kind of promoted this stuff because suddenly people are getting interested in it. They're starting to perhaps put a bit of money research into it. Uh, it becomes something which is not just, you know, some rats, uh, but you can actually see the potential impact on human health. And if we were to adopt it, part of it would be that we would have to really kind of change our perspective on what a normal human looked like. So I remember Luigi Formosa saying yeah. to you about how people who severely calorie restrict on a, on a regular basis look like another species. And, <laughs> and they do though, don't they? Because they're, slight, they're slightly cadaverous looking. Uh, certainly some of them are super skinny. You don't have to be super skinny. I mean, the benefits of intermittent fasting are clearest in people who are obese or overweight. Um, so as a way of losing weight, and clearly, when you lose weight, you get lots of other benefits. There is interesting stuff, as I said, around the brain. And I know Matson has a big trial going on at the moment looking at people who are at risk of dementia and who have been on a 5 um, diet for a while now. Uh, you can basically be normal weight and decide that this is where you want to live, in which case you'd kind of pump up the calories um, on the uh, five days to make sure you're not going to kind of lose weight. You don't have to be super skinny, uh, and not all of them are. Um, some of the uh, researchers are kind of, <laughs> they look more like you and me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I'm certainly uh, not super skinny. So uh, I did go a bit. Uh, skinny, and uh, my wife said uh, it wasn't good. Look, yeah. so I kind of balanced out. 
And yeah, from from the health benefit perspective, I mean, I, I mean, the comment that was made by um, Professor Volta Longo, who said uh, something something along the lines of, uh, you know, challenge you to find any medication that would make such radical health changes um, by all the measures that you you'd gone on a four day fast. I had, yeah, that was kind of an absolute fast. I mean, what Volta does as well is that he has developed over the last twenty years a sort of different variant. There are lots of different variants of intermittent fasting out there. Uh, what they have in common is there's a kind of reduction of calories for a while. And the mechanism seems to be that by doing this, you start to produce ketone bodies. You start to burn fat and the ketone bodies. There is some decent evidence about the benefit for sort of brain health and things like that. So he has something he calls the fast mimicking diet, where you basically go on about 800 calories for five consecutive days. Uh, and you do that once a month. And he has, you know, he's done some pretty convincing evidence trials of that, again, in animals and now in humans in two or three centers, looking at the impact on a range of things from cancer survival uh, to type 2 diabetes uh, to uh, regeneration of the immune system. So he's another fantastic scientist who's really kind of pushing the boundaries on this stuff. Mm. And uh, as I said, the thing he advocates, he, he's, he's pretty much a vegan. So uh, he, his belief is very much that um, we should be cutting down on the animal protein and eating far more sort of vegetable protein and legumes and things like that. Well, so, that was leading me to my next mm. question, really, because of, uh, I wanted to ask you about an explanation for IGF-1 mm. and how that informs or accelerates or decelerates the, the ageing process. Yeah, so IGF-1 is kind of a measure of your cancer risk. And uh, Volta has certainly argued quite convincingly. It's kind of a variant on insulin. So insulin is this incredibly powerful and important hormone, which is entered center stage, particularly in the debate around carbs. Mm. Um, so when you eat uh, a, you know, a meal which is quite rich in starchy foods, what happens is your blood sugars go up and uh, then your body starts, your pancreas starts to pump out insulin and that will make them go down again. But insulin is also a fat storage hormone. It is also a cancer-promoting hormone. So having high levels of insulin in your system is not a great idea. So IGF-1 is a bit like insulin. Um, and uh, what Volta argues quite compellingly is that if you eat large amounts of animal protein, then this pushes your IGF-1 levels up quite high, and that puts you at greater risk of, um, you know, various cancers. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it, it's um, convincing, but not yet compelling, I would mm. say, as an argument. It hasn't compelled me to become a vegan yet. But, mm, but uh, I assume that's the reason that he is one. Oh, I think so. And I think he just kind of quite likes the lifestyle. <laughs> and uh, he comes from Italy. His um, family originated in one of those sort of blue zone areas where everyone seems to live to 150 and, you know, be super healthy and run up and down the mountainside. Um, so uh, I think that's one of the things that um, is kind of driving him. He likes that style of food. And, uh, you know, when I go out and eat with him, I eat his style of food. But I have yet to move uh, wholly in that direction. I'm, I'm a bit of a flexitarian now, which I gather a lot of Australians are as well. So I try and do, a, you know, uh, at least two days a week where I'm kind of meat free. But a lot of people are actually um, jumping straight from being carnivores uh, or omnivores rather into being vegans. So it's become a kind of big thing in the UK and 
I imagine again, Australia, mm. partly motivated by health and partly motivated by, uh, you know, ethics and the concern about the greenhouse effect and, you know, the ethical issues around um, keeping rearing and slaughtering animals. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting in the research that you included in the Clever Guts diet was um, from the the Israeli, the Weizmann Institute, um, which kind of puts paid to the idea that uh, I guess the energy in versus energy Mm. out equation is not quite right. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the things that annoys me. I mean, there are various things that annoy me when people talk about diet. Uh, One of the things is that it's all about energy in, energy out. Uh, It's really simple uh, that somehow this is the second law of thermodynamics and this is always said by people who have never, ever read any laws of thermodynamics and have no idea what they're talking about. And the other thing they say is it's really simple. And I spoke to one weight loss specialist and he said it's kind of, it's not like rocket science, it's much, much more complicated than that. Um, so we know that just, we are not machines. So the idea that we are some sort of old fashioned steam engine, you can just bung anything in and then, you know, it'll burn stuff up. It's just nonsense. Uh, we are unbelievably complicated and the biome has just added to the complication so we know that the mixture of uh, microbes in your gut they can uh, influence the amount of calories you actually absorb so you and i i mean a calorie is just simply a a unit of something you burn it so you Mm. take it you put in a calorimeter you burn it and then see how much extra energy is produced but you eat um, you know, a pound of fat, eight pound of fat, uh, that doesn't mean that we will absorb the same amount of energy because our metabolic processes are going to be different and the microbes down in our gut are going to be different. And so uh, we poo out quite a lot of calories and uh, the number kind of, we know that people who are overweight tend to have a different mix of microbes mm-hmm. in their gut. And we also know from studies they've done uh, where they take overweight children and slim children, they collect poo samples, they feed them to these sort of sterile mice. Uh, the the uh, poo samples from the obese children, uh, those mice become obese despite eating exactly the same number of calories. So it really, really isn't the case that it's all about calories in, calories out, because there is a lot more complication than that. So if is being obese or overweight enough for you to know that you need to do something about the health of your microbiome? I think the two are just unbelievably closely related. We know that, um, you know, being overweight and particularly being obese has lots of unbelievably negative um, associations further, you know, on your health. I mean, clearly being told you're fat is not helpful. Mm. Being told you need to lose weight is probably not terribly helpful, although perhaps doctors could do it in a kind of warm, caring, compassionate way on the whole. Certainly British doctors don't. And the reason they don't is they assume, the, you know, they assume that the patients uh, either know it or unwilling to hear it. But the reality is the patients, you know, they would like to engage. Fat shaming is terrible and completely counterproductive. Uh, but I think, um, as I said, the other side of it, which is the idea that you can be fat and fit and all that sort of stuff, I think is also a myth. I think that there have been plenty of studies which have shown that if you are significantly overweight, it really doesn't matter how fit you are, you are still going to pay some fairly serious long-term consequences. And those range from type 2 diabetes to, you know, problems with the knees to fatty liver disease and all sorts of other stuff. So it matters. And uh, clearly, you know, the costs of the obesity crisis are going to, they're high and they're going to get higher. Mm. And what astonishes me is that governments are not doing more about it. They're not actually 
pumping more money, more research uh, into helping obesity specialists, um, you know, grapple with the problem. Uh, they'd rather just kind of deal with the aftermath, uh, which is, you know, uh, type 2 diabetes, blindness, uh, incontinence, and all the other hideous things that we know occur. When do you think fasting might become part of public policy? <laughs> I'm not optimistic it's likely to happen anytime soon, but I think it's something that, you know, people have tried. The 5-2 diet was very influential. I still get stopped in the street all the time by people who say it's changed their lives. Mm. Doesn't work for anything, everyone. Um, you know, nothing works for everyone. But certainly... In terms of type 2 diabetes, uh, there is some really, really compelling evidence about the benefits. Fasting is perhaps a misnomer. I mean, it, it would be probably better to describe it as quite significant calorie restriction. So when I wrote the original 5-2 diet, I suggested people cut down to about 600 calories. But that was based on rat studies largely. Nowadays, I tend to say, look, 600 if you can manage it, if not 800. 800 is kind of a lower end of a low-calorie diet. Uh, but that is also the kind of the number around which uh, some of the diabetes research is now going uh, because there's um, one of my heroes is a guy called Roy Taylor, Professor Roy Taylor, um, who is a professor of medicine and metabolism at Newcastle University in the UK. And um, he demonstrated it was possible to reverse type 2 diabetes in the majority of cases uh, by uh, putting people on an 800 calorie diet for 8 to 12 weeks. And so I kind of wrote a book about it. And uh, I have to say, uh, it's been remarkable. And he's done a whole bunch of studies since I wrote the book, all of which pointing in the same direction, that type 2 diabetes is a reversible disease. And uh, most patients, or many patients, certainly given the option, will do it because they don't want to spend their lives on medication. Mm, it's so, a thrilling prospect. It's thrilling, absolutely. Yeah. And it goes harks back again to kind of ulcer wars and Barry and Robin because they were there. Ulcers were an irreversible condition. Everyone knew that. You had to go on taking medication for life and maybe you had your stomach removed if it didn't work. And yet here are two people in Western Australia saying that's just not true. It is curable. It is reversible. You have to do this. And type 2 diabetes, it strikes me as the same thing, that everybody's out there saying it's irreversible. And yet we have known for a long time that is simply not true. Mm. Uh, we know because of studies done uh, a long time ago using surgery, bariatric surgery. Uh, if you do that, uh, then something like 90% of people, their diabetes goes away within days. And if you maintain weight loss, then 25 years later, they are still free of diabetes. So it's not like uh, nobody knew this. And yet they continue which I find astonishing, to perpetuate the myth that this is an irreversible and progressive disease. The worst thing about that is it just robs people of hope. So that, as Taylor said, you know, you might as well just go abandon hope, all ye who enter here. You might as well engrave that over the door of every diabetes clinic. And my wife is a GP. Uh, she has been some of the most rewarding years of her life because she started to put some of this stuff into practice. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted that uh, the scientists talk to me and that they're quite happy for me to kind of write about their work mm. and, uh, yeah, bathe in their reflected glory. 
Are there still uncharted frontiers in terms of nutrition that you want to pursue or do you think you've you've found the real pillars? I think at the moment, uh, I think there is uh, more stuff to be had uh, around intermittent fasting, different forms of intermittent fasting. Uh, As I mentioned, there is a kind of a new kid on the block, which is 16-8, where you compress your calories into eating an eight-hour window. Uh, Love animal studies, very few human studies. Uh, Some people find that much easier to do, frankly, than cutting your calories uh, two or three days a week. So be very interesting to see how that proceeds. I was um, recently at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, where the Nobel Prize come from, and they've been doing this big study on um, five two in diabetes, and the results were very, very impressive. So um, hopefully, you know, there are still plenty of critics out there, but hopefully, uh, some of these studies will uh, make them think twice. Mm. I'm not utterly convinced it will change their minds uh, but it might make them wonder and then as I said uh, when it comes to things like type 2 diabetes I think there's still a lot of fascinating research to be done both in terms of uh, acceptability of these sort of diets but also long-term outcomes how to you know the real challenge with any diet is kind of once you've lost weight how to keep it off and uh, with the clever guts which is really all of them are tied in with each other And that's what I find genuinely exciting. Each of these books has evolved from one of the other ones Mm. and um, has added richness to it. And what I love about, say, Clever Guts is the realization that if you can kind of lose weight, you go on a Mediterranean-style diet, uh, the evidence is very compelling that although your body will fight the weight loss initially, uh, within six to nine months, it will reset. And that means that it will work with you to try and maintain that weight loss rather than fight against you. Because there is, again, an utterly nihilistic view which goes that all diets fail. There's no point in going on a diet because if you lose weight, you're just going to put it back on again. Now, this is true of bad diets. There are 50,000 diets out there. Most of them are dreadful. But actually, if you have a decent diet, if you have support, if you have a community, if you do the right thing, then the evidence is strong that, um, you know, that not only can you lose the weight, but you can keep it off long term. So I guess that's kind of an area which I'm kind of roaming around in at the moment. And uh, I'm uh, talking to all sorts of people uh, at Oxford University and places like that. And my wife is actually doing a research project with Oxford at the moment, Mm. looking at exactly the subject. So uh, more mysteries to be uncovered. Dr. Michael Mosley, I think you're a very important messenger to us uh, as a public at the moment. And I thank you so much. You're always very generous with your time. Thanks for being with me. Thanks. Rare Air is produced by Mary Fayton for Three Gates Media and mixed by Adrian Sardi at Sugarland Studios. You can find the full series on iTunes by searching Rare Air with Mary Fayton. Get in touch at maryfayton.com or on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening.